Good afternoon, everyone. Librarian Danielle Bilanche here from the Cote St. Luc Public Library joining you virtually. Today, we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a conversation with best-selling author Stephanie Robble. Thank you very much, Stephanie, for taking the time to speak with me today and to Rita at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Thank you also to Andreas at Paragraph Bookstore for collaborating with us on this event. If you would like more information on how to buy the book at Paragraph, we'll let you know at the end of the event. And you can also put your name down for it, of course, at the library, there is a waiting list. To begin with, I'll share a condensed bio. Stephanie Robble is the author of Darling Rose Gold, a USA Today and international bestseller that has sold in 21 countries and was shortlisted for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel. Robble grew up in Chicago and now lives in London. This Might Hurt is her second novel. Visit her at stephanierobble.com and connect with her on Twitter at Steph Robble and Instagram at Stephanie Robble. <laughs> Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us today. I believe you <laughs> mentioned that you are in the United States. And congratulations on another masterfully written novel. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Before we even discuss your latest novel, This Might Hurt, could you please share with our audience your experience with libraries and writing stories as a kid? Sure. Um, so, so I've been a library patron for as long as I can remember. Um, as a kid, it was my favorite thing in the summer, on summer breaks especially, to go to the library, bring an empty backpack, and just fill it up with as many books as would fit, uh, and come back two and three weeks later and do the same thing all over again. And, you know, the, that never really stopped. Even when I was writing my first book, Darling Rose Gold, I wrote a lot of it um, at the Boston Public Library. That's where I was living at the time. So it just, libraries have always felt like home to me. You know, they're just nice and quiet and cozy and other, you're around other book lovers. So it's really inspiring both as a reader and writer to just kind of spend a lot of time in them. Very nice, we're happy to hear that. <laughs> I read that after college, you worked as a copywriter, then associate creative director for advertising agencies in Chicago. And that during that time, you wrote and helped produce television and radio spots, print ads, billboards, and digital campaigns for brands like Coors, McDonald's, and Capital One. What was that like? And did these skills help you later down the line? Yeah, so um, I've always wanted to be a novelist, but it didn't seem like a super practical career choice. So I did the closest thing I could think of, which was copywriting, um, which meant, yeah, writing lots of scripts. And, and it was really interesting. You know, there's certainly, you know, more parameters on what you can do creatively. Obviously, you're not just trying to entertain, you're also trying to sell something. Um, but it's been absolutely pivotal and for sure influential on my writing as a novelist. Um, you really learn the art of concision. You know, when you're when you're writing copy for a billboard that can only be seven words, you really learn the art of taking out anything that's, you know, unessential. Um, and so, yeah, between that and then also learning the art of rejection, I would say, is the other way that it's really, really influenced me. Um, you know, I was used to in advertising, like my creative director would just take my scripts and draw big X's through the ones that were no good, or, you know, tearing ideas off the wall and stuff. 
editors are much more careful with your feelings, um, at least in my experience in the publishing industry. So, so any sort of constructive criticism I get now feels very tame and <laughs> presented very nicely compared to what I was used to in my first career. Very nice. Um, so again, I will say a big thank you to Rita at Simon Schuster for sending me an advanced reader's copy of the book, which I was holding there just a second ago. Uh, so for those tuning in today, I will share a synopsis of the plot. Named a most anticipated book of 2022 by Newsweek, E, Parade, Katie Couric Media, Betches, Criminal Element, Shondaland, Bustle, and more. From the National and USA Today bestselling author of Darling Rose Gold comes a dark, thrilling novel about two sisters, one trapped in the clutches of a cult, the other in a web of her own lies. Welcome to Wisewood. We'll keep your secrets if you keep ours. Natalie Collins hasn't heard from her sister in more than half a year. The last time they spoke, it was slogging from mundane workdays to obligatory happy hours to crying in the shower about their dead mother. She told Natalie she was sure there was something more out there. And then she found Wisewood. On a private island off the coast of Maine, Wisewood's guests commit to six month stays. During this time, they're prohibited from contact with the rest of the world. No internet, no phones, no exceptions. But the rules are for a good reason, to keep guests focused on achieving true fearlessness so they can become their maximized selves. Natalie thinks it's a bad idea, but Kit has had enough of her sister's cynicism and voluntarily disappears off the grid. Six months later, Natalie receives a menacing email from a Wisewood account threatening to reveal the secret she's been keeping from Kit. Panicked, Natalie hurries north to come clean to her sister and bring her home. But she's about to learn that Wisewood won't let either of them go without a fight. Stephanie, could you please discuss the idea of how this, how the, the idea for this book first came to you? Sure. So, um, Wisewood, some people think it's a self-improvement retreat. Some people think it's a cult. Um, and I, I, that, was, that was the impetus for the book is I wanted to get inside the head of both people who join cults and people who lead them. Um, that third character, Natalie, that you mentioned, who's the outsider coming in was really uh, a late addition. Um, there's three perspectives that the book is written from. Um, and I knew those first two who were more acutely involved in the, uh, in the cult from the beginning, but Natalie was kind of a surprise joiner um, in, you know, later on in the ideation phase. So as you just pointed out, this might hurt has three points of view, and it is not readily apparent who each of these characters are as the story progresses. I personally enjoyed this part of the puzzles. Uh, this part of the puzzle, sorry. Um, how did you decide the sequence of events and how do you connect the dots? Yeah, so there's, um, for those who haven't read, which is probably most people since it just came <laughs> out yesterday, um, uh, the first part is goes back and forth between Natalie, um, the older sister, and an unidentified child um, who we will see continue to see her story um, as the story goes on. And, you know, I, like I said, I knew I wanted to do these three perspectives. I didn't know exactly how they'd come together, but without giving anything away, you know, that, that anonymous child, let's call her, I knew who she was in the character, uh, in present day as an adult. And what led to including her origin story was just a deeper 
exploration of like, how did she become the person that she became? And so, you know, I started with her in full, you know, adulthood and then young adult and then adolescence and then just kept going back and back and back further um, until I found the answer that I was looking for. So, so it wasn't necessarily something I intended to include from the beginning, um, but I just found her story very fascinating. Um, and I hope readers will feel the same. I think they will. <laughs> the characters in this book can at times be dark and edgy, as is the overall mood of the novel. How did you go about achieving this, not only through the locale, but also through the characters' personalities? So um, in terms of character development, I, <laughs> I listened to a lot of Billie Eilish randomly um, while I was coming up with them. You know, it's kind of got that gritty, dark, disturbing feel. Um, not her most recent album, but the one before. Um, so there's little things like that that you can do to kind of get you in the, in the mood, in the mind frame. Um, but I also think that the topics that we're dealing with here kind of lend themselves well to that. So this, you know, Wisewood is all about mastering your fears and conquering pain. Um, and those things can definitely be dark, you know, when you really dive into them, whether we're talking about physical pain or for most of the guests at Wisewood, it's, um, oftentimes more so emotional pain. Um, so it kind of just lends itself well to this like dark and disturbing sort of atmosphere. Which was your favorite character to write and why? Um, I would say my favorite character was probably Teacher, um, <laughs> who is the leader of Wisewood. Um, she has just, I don't know, she's, I think she's the least like me or I'm the least like her, um, thankfully. <laughs> um, and those characters are always the ones that are the most intriguing to me. You know, I really like to write about society's outliers, people who don't adhere to the rules like the rest of us and try to figure out why that is. And she's certainly an example of that. You know, she, she had an unconventional childhood um, with a lot of trauma in it. Um, and so to see who she becomes and the way she sort of rises above it, yet at the same time getting stuck in some of these, you know, things that she was taught um, was just a lot of um, fun to explore. And just, yeah, it made, for, it made for a very deep psychological dive, I would say. So this anonymous child, when she is a child in the novel, has a very difficult father. Is he based on a real person or bits and pieces of different stories? No, he's not based on a real person. Um, yeah, it was just, uh, he, I mean, you know, I've, I've read enough and watched enough. I mean, I thankfully have no experience with this. My dad is very normal and supportive and not crazy. Um, but you know, you, you see enough of that stuff and it's just, you know, the power of the imagination, I guess. Um, I really wanted her to have this overbearing father who demanded perfection in his children. Um, and demanded, you know, some sort of, if not superiority, at least some sort of extraordinary abilities, um, I think, to compensate for his own averageness. You know, he doesn't really view his own life as a success. And so he wants more for his children. And the way that it comes out is just, you know, horribly abusive, <laughs> you know, instead of being the more encouraging route that a lot of parents go when they want their kids to, you know, be ambitious and successful. This novel has been marketed as great for fans of Leanne Moriarty's Nine Perfect Strangers. Did you read this book? And if so, do you agree with that? 
Yeah. You know, I, I did read the book. I, I haven't watched the adaptation. Um, but yeah, I really, I love that book a lot. I can see again, without saying too much, I can see why the comparisons are being drawn. Certainly. I mean, I will say that, um, that resort, uh, I think Tranquillum it's called, it was felt a little more upscale, a little more, um, kind of going toward, uh, trying to attract a certain clientele, whereas Wisewood is more like, we'll take anyone. Part of their thing is um, trying to make it relatively affordable or sometimes like subsidizing people joining. Um, so it feels a little different in that sense. It's not really about, you know, getting massages or, you know, that kind of, you know, it's, it's not, it's less of like a spa feel. Um, people go there and they're doing chores and stuff, you know, they're, they're cleaning rooms, they're doing laundry. Um, but certainly, yeah, there's, there's definitely with this kind of charismatic leader, um, at the middle of it, that definitely feels, you know, obviously rings very true to this story as well. The dynamics between sisters, Natalie and Kit definitely feel authentic. Uh, did you have your own sisters give the characters a read to find out if they agree? I didn't, I mean, my sisters have read the book now, but, um, I didn't necessarily have them like read it early on or anything. Um, it was definitely easier to write sisters. I think than you know, when I was deciding who's this third character, this outsider going to be, um, I don't have any brothers. Um, I obviously have, there would of course be tons of similarities with, um, siblings, uh, regardless of gender. But for me, it was just the, the sister relationship is a very unique one. Um, and because I've, you know, been, been part of it my whole life, it just, it felt ripe for exploration on the page. The other more intriguing central character, the anonymous one that we spoke about in this book is an illusionist that performs incredible and jaw-dropping stunts. How did you go about researching this aspect of the novel? And was this character based on a real life character or bits and pieces of stories? Yeah, so um, she is based on bits and pieces, I would say. Um, I started with probably, I can't remember who came first, but like certainly David Blaine um, is a, you know, an American illusionist who's known for doing all these crazy feats of endurance. Um, Darren Brown, who's a UK mentalist, he does these sorts of big performances. Um, and he was definitely a, an inspiration. And then also um, Marina Abramovic, um, who's an American just perform like, I guess not stunt artist, but sort of like performance artist. Um, so yeah, I kind of studied all of the different things that they were doing and why they were doing them. Some of them have very interesting thoughts on pain. Um, and yeah, all of that kind of came together. Initially, this character's performance art is more, you know, stage-based in front of a big crowd and doing smaller things like maybe that we've seen before, like eating glass or, you know, whatever, doing like whatever sort of illusions on stage. But then she really moves on to much more dramatic things that will have a smaller crowd, but certainly get more attention. Um, she feels the need to <clears throat> constantly reinvent herself, sorry, um, and just keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so that was, you know, that was fun in terms of, I think those scenes and those challenges that she commits to are just so visual and cinematic. I can see them happening before my eyes. Um, so that was, so that was, yeah, that was a fun area to explore. 
Both your novels, Darling Rose Gold and This Might Hurt, have at their center dysfunctional families. Was this intentional and how does your family feel about this? <laughs> it was not intentional. It's funny. Um, the books are usually described as, you know, a mother-daughter story with Rose Gold and then a sister story <laughs> with This Might Hurt. And it's interesting. I didn't, I never intended to write family stories. I think it um, came out as a consequence of the topics that I really wanted to write about, which in the first book was Munchausen by Proxy. Um, which the mother Patty has. And in that case, um, it's usually a mother and child, you know, in, in situations of Munchausen by proxy. So that, that was the reason for, you know, that relationship. And then with this might hurt, like I said, once I decided I wanted this third outsider perspective, um, I wanted it to be somebody who would feel more obligated than a friend to come, you know, sort of rescue this, this person who's gone awry but less dedicated than a parent. So a sibling just felt like kind of the right balance between those two. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up with two sisters, but it was never, you know, what I really wanted to write a book about was a cult. And it was just kind of like the sister thing just happened along the way. I'd like to read a couple of author reviews of your book and let me know if you think they ring true. Okay. Uh, Ashley Audrey a New York Times bestselling author of The Push wrote a mesmerizing and original ride, expertly paced, hugely unsettling and perfectly dark. You'll be gripped in this clever exploration of fear and vulnerability right until the flawless ending, one you'll most certainly want to talk about. And Liz Nugent, bestselling author of Little Cruelties wrote, I don't know if blood is thicker than water, but I know that my blood ran cold at several points reading this book. Filled with menace, this was a gripping and compulsive read from first page to last. I thought I'd never get off that island. Yeah, it's, it was so funny getting that um, getting that really nice blurb from um, Liz because yeah, the that idea of like, oh my god, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> I'm so glad that came across on the page, you know, because that is, you know, that was why I chose an island. I think it it automatically has this claustrophobic feel, particularly if you don't want to be there. You know, if you do, then it's a completely different feel, and that's what I think is kind of interesting is juxtaposing Natalie's arrival in the winter at Wisewood versus Kit's arrival in the summer at Wisewood. One of them really wants to be there and is hoping to find something. The other one does not want to be there and wants to get away as soon as possible. And I think that, you know, beyond islands, of course, that rings true to any setting, you know, it, whether you want to be somewhere or not, what the weather's like, all of that determines your, you know, your perception of a place, how at home or how, you know, much of a stranger you feel to it. I noticed there were a couple of very short videos online of you um, at different what looks like research for the novel. So you're either in a scene that has kind of you're at a lake, with a creepy sort of a forest or standing around in boulders. Um, so were you in Maine or did you travel somewhere else to kind of um, visualize the setting for the book and the island portion of it? Yeah, so I was lucky. I, I went to Maine um, for a weekend in May of 2019. Um, and, you know, the, the island itself and the facilities of Wisewood are completely made up just to my own, you know, specs in my head. Um, but the area is real. So I pictured it in mid-coastal Maine, specifically leaving from Rockland Harbor. So I went to that harbor because I wanted to see what Natalie would see when she, you know, when she arrives and tries to get on the ferry and go. Um, and so I was lucky enough to actually hire um, a local ornithologist to take me around in his dinghy um, from 
island to island and just kind of take a look and see what, you know, what does it actually look like to have an uninhabited island that someone could go in and buy and like, you know, put this sort of facility there. So yeah, that was me just traipsing around these sorts of, you know, <laughs> some, you know, unsold islands, some were, some were populated, but the vast majority of them are not. Um, it was an absolutely beautiful area. And I'm so glad that I, you know, that I put the book there because I, I can still see it in my mind, you know, just how blue the water is, just the number of evergreen trees. It's Maine is just so beautiful. And I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted the book to be set there um, because it's, it's got a beauty that could either, again, be perceived as just overwhelming, awe-inspiring, but also like it can feel very stark in, you know, in the right or wrong conditions. Have you been approached by anyone in order to bring this story to the big or the small screen? So we've had, you know, conversations, nothing official yet. Um, nothing, you know, is but, but we'll see. I mean, I would absolutely love to see it. I'd love to, you know, collaborate with other creative people and see what it would look like um, on the screen. But no, nothing, nothing as of now. You recently posted, and I quote, two years, seven drafts, doubt, fear, frustration. Writing this might hurt is one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I'm so glad I saw it through. I love writing in my bones and my fingertips and every waking thought. And I hope that seal comes across in these pages. I'd have to say yes as a reader. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what advice would you give to any prospective uh, writers listening in today? So I think from, from a more practical perspective, usually what I, what I say to emerging writers is, set your own goals and deadlines um, in terms of whether it's, you know, number of words per day or chapters, scenes, whatever, even if it's not a lot, you know, when you're first starting out and you don't have anybody else setting deadlines for you, it's easy to just kind of deprioritize it. We all have, you know, other work, families, whatever to attend to, but if you're really serious about it um, and you just want, whether you want it published or not, um, just to finish, I think like so many writers never get there because you're either worried about the perfection of it, or you feel like it's not going to be good enough or, you know, whatever life gets in the way. So I think, um, setting those, setting a schedule for yourself, you know, even if it's like printing out a calendar and writing what you're going to do, you know, each week or month or whatever, from a more, um, inspirational perspective, I would say remembering why you're doing it. You know, I think when you're trying to get published, it can be really easy to get caught up in, why is it taking the agent so long to respond? You know, I'm not hearing back. What's going on? Da, 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 da. And I think if you just keep, if your main motivator is just the love of writing and the desire to improve at the craft, then that's going to be enough to power you forward. You know, if the only thing keeping you going is getting published, then it's a lot easier to feel rejected and give up, you know, but for me, just this idea of, I wanted to be writing regardless of what happened. Um, it didn't matter how many people rejected me. I was just going to keep going until somebody said yes. So I'm just going to show the cover because when I first saw this cover, um, the title is This Might Hurt. Mm. Again, a three-word title as mm. Garland Rose Gold. Um, but I thought, this is a really strange cover. This Might Hurt with a beautiful china plate. <laughs> But I do think it refers to something that happens in the book. So I will tell 
everyone out there, please read the book because then you'll say, oh no, it's this, this certain uh, dish from one of the incidents that happens in the book. Yes. And you don't have to wait very long. It's in chapter six. <laughs> so you'll, you'll find it soon. <laughs> Thank you very much, Stephanie. Before I turn it over to the audience and let them ask you a few questions of their own, can you please share with the audience what your next project will be? Sure. So I um, recently finished a first draft of my third novel. So we'll see what the feedback is on that. Um, but it is about an American woman who's living in a giant manor in the English countryside. Um, she hasn't spoken to anyone in two years. She hasn't left her house in two years. We don't know why at the outset. Um, but the book begins with an elderly British woman coming to her door and things unfold from there. Okay, Sounds very intriguing. <laughs> So to the, to the members of the audience, if you want to ask Stephanie a question, please put it into the Q&A or the chat, and Stephanie will be happy to take the question. In the meantime, um, I've heard that you have a dog named Moose Barwink uh, Barwinkle. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about him? Sure. Um, he's a cockapoo. He's five years old. He's not the size of a moose. Everyone kind of assumes he must be a giant dog, but um, yeah, I got him when, uh, when I was living in Boston and he has been my companion in writing every day since, you know, he's always at my feet or somewhere nearby, but yeah, he's, he's quite the ham and basically just lies on his back all day and does nothing to contribute to the, to the household, but he's our little mascot and, you know, keeps us in good cheer. Very nice. And what are you reading right now? Um, a novel that I recently finished and loved is A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay, um, who is a horror writer. And I've been dabbling a little more in reading horror. I wouldn't say it's my typical genre, but I really love that book. The, this is also a book about sisters. Um, and the, the voice of the narrator is just so uh, witty. And anytime you know you can find humor in a genre that's typically not thought of as funny, like horror, I'm all for it. Um, he also offers a really thoughtful analysis of the genre, um, both novels and film. So yeah, it was just, I, I tore through it. Like the, the action was amazing, but also you know there was just like a lot of layers in it. So, so I can't recommend that one highly enough. Thank you. So we do have a question uh, from the audience from Esther who asks, who chooses the blurbs that appear on the book jacket? So that is up to my publisher. Um, we all kind of reach out to different authors and see if they'd like to read the book um, in the US, UK and Canada. Um, and then, you know, each publisher decides, you know, which quote goes on the on the cover. And that really varies from market to market. Um, it just depends, I think, probably which authors are better known in some markets than others. So, yeah, I have no say over that. I just kind of look at it and go, yeah, that sounds good. And another question is, how much influence does an editor have in the writing of a book? A lot of influence um, in a good way, though. So, so it's nothing prescriptive, but the editor is there to point out things that aren't working. Sometimes um, they'll offer solutions, but you certainly don't have to use those. Um, as long as the problem gets solved, that's what matters. And honestly, when you're so close to something, you can't tell what's missing from it. You can't tell where you've been long-winded or where you need to beef things up. So 
Um, I'm always excited when it's time to share things with my editors because it feels like it's not all on me. You know, now it feels like some somebody to talk to um, about it with. But yeah, the that first draft, you're you know door closed all by yourself doing it. But from then on, um, the editor like definitely has um, a lot of uh, influence and feedback to offer. And how has the pandemic affected your writing? You know, it hasn't really affected the writing so much. To be honest, the writing's kind of been a godsend in a pandemic because <laughs> you can just leave the real world and go into this fake one. And even though this might hurt is very dark, it's one that's completely under my control, whereas obviously the real world is not. Um, so the trick for me with writing during the pandemic has been less about the writing itself and more about when I'm away from my desk, just trying to keep my spirits up and, you know, trying to keep your mental health in check, which is something that we can all relate to. I think, you know, it's certainly not exclusive to writers. Okay. Um, and you open this book on a Charles Manson quote. Mm -hmm. So I have to admit this did scare me a little bit, even though the title is This Might Hurt. When I first read this quote, I thought, oh boy, what am I getting myself into? Um, why this quote? So what I really loved about the quote is I feel like it addresses each of my three narrators. So one of them is looking up, one of them is looking down, and one of them is looking straight on. And I won't say who is who, but I think once you've read the book, it's probably pretty obvious. Um, and yes, of course, the fact that Manson was also a cult leader doesn't hurt. Um, but yeah, I just, when I came across it, it stopped me cold. I really wasn't intending to put an epigraph in, to be honest, but it just felt so um, perfect for it that I couldn't resist it. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I think uh, that's all I have for today. I don't see any more um, questions coming in through the chat or the Q&A. It was a pleasure to speak to you and thank you uh, for joining us today and good luck on the rest of your tour for This Might Hurt, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend uh, to everyone who's listening to well, Thank you so much, Danielle. This was fun. Thank you. Have Bye. a good day, everyone. Thank you.